0: Hope y'all are doing well. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 8, great 8, um, as John Piper calls it back in the day when I used to listen to Romans sermons every week. Had to dial up, took like 55 minutes to download the sermon, still did it anyway. Um, <clears throat> y'all don't even know about that, you're in your 20s, like dial up. Anyway. Um, so here's what's going on uh, I'm going to pray in just a second but let me give you an, a heads up of what's going on um, as I finished last week um, well we've been going through the book of Romans so the very first week a couple of weeks ago I preached chapters 1 through 5 all in one sermon and as we looked at chapters 1 through 5 the big overview of the gospel who needs it and what it does for us and that's basically the overview of chapters 1 through 5 Last week we looked at chapter 6, just kind of zeroed in on one little section in regard to our responsibility in pursuing Christ likeness. As Christians, what does it mean for us to pursue Christ likeness? Romans 6 told us our responsibility, and as you kind of get into some of the first part of chapter 8, you can see how the Spirit works with us in helping us achieve more Christ likeness. Um, And I was gung-ho for this coming Sunday today to go into Romans chapter 9. 1 through 23, to look at the justification of God and talk about what all this means and try to unpack for us the depths of, as much as I could, obviously, um, to be predestined by God. What does that mean? Um, this, coming, this past Wednesday night... Uh, and, you know, I went, I went to a, a time of, of preaching and, and singing. And they didn't talk about w- either one of these sections. But I went uh, over to Greenville. David Platt was preaching. The Passion Worship Band uh, was, was the worship band. It was just, it was awesome. It was Wednesday night. Um, and as I was driving home, it was 11 p.m., maybe 10.30 or something like that. Um, as I said, I was going to do Romans 9. I decided to call an audible and not do Romans 9. But instead, the section right above Romans 9 which is the, the doxology, basically, of Paul. Uh, it's, it's, it's the climax of everything that's been going on in Romans 1 through 8 at the very end as he gets to verses 31 through 39. He just explodes in these unanswerable questions, which they're all answerable, it's nothing, about the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus for us. And so, um, which shortened my, my week on writing a sermon, um... But as I found myself kind of in awe of the love of God again for me uh, that night, and, and it's, my position's are maybe a little bit different. I don't, I don't get to be preached at very much, and when I do, I just eat it up. Like, I want people to just nail me. And, like, and Platt, if you ever heard him preach, like, you're going to get crushed. Um, and so, uh, just, I guess, being in awe of the love of God for me, I wanted to do something a little different, so... Um, we're going to look at, I'm going to preach them. we're going to rehearse again um, verses in the Bible, verses 31 through 39 about the love of God for us. Now, <clears throat> you'll notice, um, which is something different, Jordan, Jordan didn't forget to walk off the stage. Um, he, uh, he's there and he's going to be there um, because I also am going to do something a little bit different. My, my hope is a couple things. Number one, you'll see how intensely practical the love of God and knowing how much Christ's love you, how intensely practical that is in your life. Um, And for me at least, and I'm hoping for all of us, that is going to make us pause as we hear a a 55-minute sermon. Make us pause. I'm thinking, and explode with doxology, explode with worship. So he's on the stage here, and I don't know what's going to happen. We've tried to talk it over and what it might look like. I've got points of where we think we're going to stop, and we're just going to sing. Um, so that's my goal, is I, I, I think that we can't talk about the love of God without pausing to corporately give him glory. So uh, we'll see how that goes, and that's, that's, the I guess, the major prayer point. Um, so... Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll go into today's text. Lord, we love you, and I, I pray for your help this morning in so many regards. I, I want to do justice to your text. Um, I've studied, and I leave it into your hands. I pray that everything I say will be helpful. I pray that as we, as we look into your word, and we just, hopefully all of us feel and experience the love of Christ. We we feel and experience how intensely practical it is in our everyday life. It's not just some big truth out there that we know, but instead matters deeply, changes us deeply. Has a lot to say about the way we live every day. And I pray that we would, we would worship you this morning based on Christ's love for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're told that God loves you, and um, I'm told that God loves, loves us. And sometimes as we hear that, as we hear it too much, I see it with my own children, um, I tell them that I love them. And now it's just like, I know what you're going to say. You love me, I got it. You know. Um, and I think that sometimes we can hear that God loves us so many times that it doesn't seem to phase us. It's it's informational. It's like being told you're male or female. Yeah, I got that. I know that. Um, But uh, this is maybe my main thing. If you listen to anything I say, listen to this one sentence. Knowing that God loves you is not meant to be informational knowledge. It's meant to be transformational knowledge. I want to say it again so you didn't miss it. Knowing that God loves you is not meant to be informational knowledge exclusively. It's meant to be transformational knowledge. God loves you. That's not just a, okay, good, ho-hum, what's the next thing? Knowing that God loves us is supposed to absolutely transform everything about you. Transform your relationships. Transform the way you think every moment. Transform the way you talk. Transform the way you eat, the way you love, the way you live, the the way you read, the way you forgive others. Everything is transformed by the knowledge, this transformational knowledge that God loves you. What we're looking at here at verses 31 through 39, as I said, is the full on tip top climax of the entire book so far of Romans. Everything leads to this. This is, this is the, the top of the roller coaster of Romans, of the book of Romans, and then it, we start going downhill again. The downhill still, I mean, when, there's a thrill as you go down. So there's a thrill in 9 through 16. But we're at the very top. So let's, let's look at the very climax of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, the first little sentence, what shall we say to these things? We got to stop right there because what are these things? What are these things? Well, arguably, you could go back and say the entire book up until this point. Romans chapters 1 through 5, the gospel. Who's it for? What does it do for us? Where did it come from? What does it bring to us? And what does it mean for us in regard to pursuing Christ's likeness, Romans 6, and how did the spirit couples went with that? If if you want to just summarize the entire thing. You can just go back three verses to Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that have been called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that we he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then it says, and those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're, we're talking about all of salvation and all of the gospel of Christ in saving us. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to this amazing gospel that God has not only predestined but called, called but justified, justified and glorified us? And so Paul is, is, is getting at the very top of Romans and he's saying, what do we say about these things? And then we hear about the love of God for us. who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us all? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then it says in verse, uh, I think it's 35, "Who, who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, this is amazing, amazing language that he's using to us. He tells us about this amazing love, and he asks a series of questions, which we'll look at five basically almost unanswerable questions. What's the purpose of all these questions? I want you to consider how practical Paul is being here when he says, have you been called? Have you found that the gospel has come home to your soul with power? Have you been called by God and justified? Have you asked God to justify you? As he says, we can do it later on in Romans 10. And then he says, that's good. Now realize this. That would not and could not have happened unless the great God of heaven had set his love upon you from the depths of eternity before time and is now infallibly working out his plan to live with you and for you to live in his family forever. The purpose of these questions, uh, the, Tim Keller says this, the purpose of these questions in 31 through 39 is to almost beat us out of our disbelief that we are saved totally by grace and that we are therefore completely safe and should face life without any fear because we'll live in constant disbelief of that. And the purpose of these questions that he's asking is to beat that out of us. He said, it is incredibly relentless, intense logic. It is logic on fire. Paul is saying, think. Are you ever afraid? Then you aren't thinking. Are you ever worried? You aren't thinking. Are you ever guilty? You aren't thinking. See the logic of the free grace and justification that these aren't just dry doctrines. They are actually life itself. So five unanswerable questions that he asked. These won't be on the, on, the, on the projector behind me. I want you to just listen to these. And hopefully as we go through this, it will we'll explode in some, some worship. If God is for us, Who can be against us? That's the first question he asks. If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice he didn't say this. He didn't say, who is against us? Because there could be a barrage of answers that could be supplied there, right? Sin, um, indwelling sin, death, the devil, the world. We could just list out all kinds of things. But instead, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has purposed all, his, all of his glory to be given to us um, in the gospel and be put on display, why would we ever be afraid of any opposition? If God is for us, Luther says, if he is the judge of all and he's not against you, then why, why would you ever fear? If God is the judge of everybody... So, Paul intentionally phrases this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, he was a pastor that lived in uh, like the 300s. They called him Golden Tongue. He was such an amazing preacher. He said, Even if someone was against you, God would turn their plots into our salvation and his glory. Anyway, so no one can be against you. That's pretty amazing. So God is for us. God is for you. I'm gonna gonna try to emphasize as much as I can. God is for you. Think about that. One more time. God is for you. Child of God, God is for you. If God is for you, Who can be against you? Think about how intensely practical the love of Christ, knowing that God is for me. Every day, the way you live your life. John Stott says, All the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail against us since God is on our side. That's that's amazing. Day by day, as you feel like you're in absolute distress, Everything stacked against you. All the powers of hell together may set themselves against you, but they'll never prevail because God himself is on your side. Reminds me of the Chris Tomlin song. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand against us? The answer is no one and no thing ever. Ever. Think about how intensely practical that that informs your everyday life, knowing that nothing can ever stand against you because God is for you. How can that change the way you live your life every single day when you feel like the deck is stacked against you or nothing ever goes right? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says after that in question two, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with us graciously give us all things? If the first question kind of highlights for us God's power, this one highlights for us God's generosity. Now, we've got to be careful when we hear he's going to graciously give us all things. We automatically think, that sounds awesome. All things, I'm all about All things. Likely, in this particular set of verses, as he's been unpacking the gospel for eight chapters, all things is speaking of all things necessary for our salvation. So all things necessary for your salvation, he is going to not just give them to you. He is going to, with Christ, graciously give you all things necessary for your salvation. He is beating it into us that there is no amount of work ever that you can accomplish for your salvation. Instead, it's all been done by him for his glory. The generosity of God is is on display here. And if God is going to ultimately give us all things necessary for our salvation, why then would we fret about the all things necessary? temporal and earthly that we feel like we need? Why would we fret about these things that they could only last at most 110 years compared to the 10,000s upon 10,000s of years that will be in heaven forever? It doesn't make sense. He who did not spare his own son. Notice it didn't say this. He didn't ask, will God not give us all things? He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, he also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Someone could surely come up with a lot of things that we think we need that God doesn't give us. I mean, I am, I am and maybe you are, so fickle about believing that God's going to supply my needs. So fickle. But this verse says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God, who has purposed our glorification from eternity past, is willing to give up his most Precious possession, namely his own son. If he is willing to give up his most precious possession to meet our greatest need, which is our sin problem, why would we need to worry about any other needs that we have? God is taking care of the most important need that you could ever have. And in order to take care of it, he gave up his most precious possession ever, his own son. If he took care of our greatest need with his most precious, he didn't just go find something in the in the you know that we're willing to like you know you, you go dig in your closet and you're willing to give away the stuff you don't want to wear anymore to Goodwill. It's not like God went back in the back of his closet and went to his Goodwill section to take care of our greatest need. He gave up his most precious possession ever, his own Son, to take care of our greatest need. Stott says the cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing. So he's saying, not just in one moment, but continuing for your lifetime, continuing, unfailing generosity of God. The cross is the absolute guarantee of that. And so God's generosity has been put on display that he is, in his generosity, given Christ to die for us, the almighty when he's done that, is to make us holy, but not only to make us holy, but also to make us happy. When I say happy, I mean gloriously happy in Christ forever. We're talking about our joy being fulfilled forever. I mean, that's that's amazing. How, how I've said it many times already, intensely practical is that every day for you to feel and experience the love of God to such a level that his generosity is overflowing to you, how does that change the way you live, talk, eat, forgive others, read everything you do in life that he's taking care of all your needs? He asks the next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Every, every time so far, I've tried to, uh, Well, he, and he gives a real quick answer. It's God who justifies. So every time here, I've tried to show, maybe he could have said it a different way. He didn't say, who can accuse you? Instead, he adds this designation or title about us as he a- asked the question. He doesn't say, who can accuse you? Because I'd be like, well, my wife, my kids, and I could just go down the list, right? But instead, he, he puts in that question a beautiful designation, a beautiful title. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Which, if we go back over to verses 29 and 30, he says, not those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who be justified, he also glorified. So he goes through this kind of never stopping, can't be broken link chains of where we get from foreknowledge all the way down to our eventual glorification. And so we see that it's been from eternity past that we are literally God's elect. And he says, if you're my elect and I have purpose from eternity past, as it says in Ephesians 1.5 and 1.12, that I would save you forever. You are mine. I have elected you. I have predestined you and called you and justified you and glorified you. If I have done that, if, if the Lord God has done that, who's going to bring any charge against you? Because you're mine. That's, that's amazing. And it's, it's put in this particular section regarding God's love. Our election is put into the section on love. Why would he do that? Because he loves you more than you could ever conceive. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, not anybody else. No one else can justify you. No one else can call you innocent, except he can. He doesn't say who can accuse you. Because all accusations fall to the ground against God's elect. Consider that for a second. All parenthetical statement. Even if they're true, accusations will, especially when they're true, because of Christ's death, all accusations fall to the ground against God's elect. No prosecution can, because He's entering into the courtroom scene for, with us. No prosecution can ever succeed. No prosecution. It doesn't matter who the attorney is. It if it's Tom Cruise or whatever that was and he's in like five different lawyer movies, it doesn't matter if it's him or the guy that freed OJ. Like nobody, the best lawyer ever, no attorney will ever be able to try a case. They will never win, ever, ever. This pardon that we have received is absolutely complete. It's absolutely definite. It can never be shaken, ever. It's not even allowed to go over into appeals court. That's not allowed. This accusation, any and all accusations, fall to the ground every time, no matter what, against God's elect. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, God's the one that declares innocent. It is God who justifies. And he did it because of his love. We must face our life, not only our troubles, but even not not only our, 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 our down times in life, our dry seasons in life, not just our where we feel in kind of melancholy, but even our sin, we must face all of life with a towering, infallible confidence that we are absolutely forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if God has purposed this from eternity past to declare his elect righteous and that no accusation will ever stand against them, that means that we're never guilty. When no one will ever call us guilty, ever. Since God has justified you, no one can bring any charge against you. That means you're free. Consider that. Every day, you're totally free. You have no fear whatsoever. No fear there's a song that we're going to sing. It's awesome. I love it. Um, it's a new song. There's a, he's, we're going to sing the chorus of it, that we're no longer slaves to fear, that we're child, children of God. And as we sing this, I want you to just consider the love of God for you. Imagine what these words truthfully mean as we sing them. Let's stand and sing this together. a seat for a second. We're going to sing again. This next one is pretty awesome. He asks again, who is to condemn? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then almost in the same way, he asks another question. Who is to condemn? And as he says, who is to condemn? He unpacks the gospel. He just says, who's to condemn? And he looks right at you and he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, not only died, because if that's it, then that's just not, a good, that's not good news. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, this is crazy, interceding for us. Who's to condemn? And then he tells us this amazing story about Christ dying, being resurrected. He's with God. And then he's also interceding for us. If you and I can be perfectly honest here regarding condemnation, if we, can be, if we can be perfectly honest, you might not say it out loud, but at least you think this, I think this, our heart will try to condemn us all the time. Especially after we've sinned. Our heart will try to condemn us all the time. There's maybe four little steps in this answer he gives us when he says, who shall condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Jesus died for each and every single sin that can condemn you. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. You didn't have to die because Christ Jesus has died for you. God condemned sin in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. I mean, that's, that's where Paul takes that turn after seven, and you just get like, where did 8 1 come from? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoa. No condemnation. I mean, just as you walk around, make up your own song, and it's just two words no condemnation. You just sing that to yourself all the time. No condemnation. <sighs> Life changing. But then he says, more than that, who was raised. Jesus Christ was raised to life. Not only did he die, but he was raised back to life. Not to die again ever, but to show that death could never defeat him. Everybody else that's raised, they die again. Physically. Jesus is a human being alive right now and will never ever die in heaven. What does that mean then? It's intensely practical. It means that it demonstrates that God is totally accepting of the sacrifice of his son because after that he raised him. And therefore now we also have been raised to life with Christ forever. So Christ is, Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? If he's at the right hand of God, And not here, that means at the moment of his death when he yelled out, It is finished to tell us die, it's over. If Jesus is at the right hand of God, then Jesus' work is finished. He finished it. And as he finished it, he is now occupying the most supreme place of honor that ever exists at the right hand of God. He is right beside God. He is sitting right next to the Father. No one else is allowed to do that except for Jesus, who is also God. And then it says this. All right, so what's he doing? What's he doing as he's sitting in the most supreme place of honor? This, this, this is not what we would immediately guess he would be doing. Who indeed is interceding for us? Who am I that you are mindful of me? Feel like David. Who am I? He's interceding for us. Who's to condemn? Jesus is in the most supreme place of honor right now. Who's going to condemn you? Because Jesus is interceding right now for you. The Son of God is advocating right now to God. This very minute, His interceding to God means that He continues in this very moment. He continues for all of us. He continues to secure all the benefits of His death for His people. His advocating, His interceding right now continually secures the ongoing benefits that we receive because of the gospel. If Christ died a perfect death and he lived a perfect life and he's standing before Father, his own his Father right now, and he secured all this. How can you ever be condemned? How can you ever be called guilty? How could you ever be called unforgiven? Answer? <laughs> you can't. These are all unanswerable rhetorical questions that he's asking us therefore you can with absolute confidence you can look out and challenge the entire universe if someone's going to try to condemn you and say no one is ever going to condemn me whoever's trying to you can preach that to yourself or anybody else I'm in Christ so you who are trying to condemn whether it's me or anybody in the universe I'm in Christ You can take that junk and get it out of here. It doesn't live here. It doesn't live in this mind. Romans 8.1 I'm in Christ. Reminds me of the song In Christ Alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love what depths of peace, when fills are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ. And I've added a couple words. That's where I stand forever. I think that's a pretty good place to stop and sing. Let's stand and sing in Christ alone. At least just the first verse. Let's sing it.
1: ground, firm through the fiercest out and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter. He Heat my light My strength My song This cornerstone This solid ground Firm through the fiercest Rout and storm What heights of love What depths of peace When fears are still When striving
0: have a seat. We're going to sing even more at the end. It's going to be more songs than one, though. It's going to be awesome. Who shall separate us from the love of God? From the love of Christ, actually, he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's interesting here, right? He asks who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists things that aren't people. He personifies tribulation distress persecution famine nakedness danger sword who shall separate us in other words there will pe- be people that would maybe take on these particular characteristics he asks seven he lists seven things that can maybe separate us from the love of christ these these seven things are maybe in I, I think in three different groups the first one is tribulation distress persecution those things seem to be going together Outside pressures from the ungodly or those who don't know Christ that want to hurt us. Will those things separate us from the love of Christ? No. And then two other things where he says famine or nakedness. The the lack of food or clothing. Not necessarily outside pressures, but just things that might happen in life for some of those that follow Christ. And, And by the way, he told us in the Sermon on the Mount that these things would happen. They don't separate you from the love of Christ. Then he asks danger or sword. Possibly back to the first one. At risk of death. Is the risk of death going to separate you from the love of God? Or, not just the risk, experiencing death. Is that going to separate you from the love of Christ? No. And he even helps you see it by quoting Psalm 44, 22. For it is written. For your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This means as we read that. This means that martyrdom is normal Christianity. Martyrdom is normal Christianity. Our safeness and our security in America is an anomaly. Normal Christianity means martyrdom. We should praise God that we live in the anomaly. We get to live longer lives than most Christians. But if you look for the last 2015 years, Christianity has not been a safe religion. And even today, more Christians have been killed in the last 100 years than the first 1900. Outside of America, this is Romans eight thirty-five through thirty-nine. If you look at Hebrews eleven thirty-five through thirty-nine, it speaks of maybe what's more commonplace for most Christians. It says some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that that, that they might rise again to a better life some suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn in two they were killed with the sword they went about in skins of sheep and goats destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth all of these though mended through their faith did not receive what was promised and a little parenthetical statement until they died they didn't receive it here they received it in death which is life with Christ forever. That's Hebrews eleven thirty-five 35 through 39. And that was of the first century Christians, which is, as again, martyrdom is normal Christianity. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This means that the only thing that we really have to fear as Christians, that can really harm us is to be separated from the love of Christ. Not, not death. Separation from the love of Christ. And then he gets to the answer. Finally, we've been asking all these questions and he gives us the answer. So you'll notice, even in verse 38, um, Paul reaches the. Abs- if, if we've been at the climax, those, those first few words are maybe like the very top for I am sure it's not I'm hoping it's not I'm heard for I am sure and then he gives this like breathtaking description of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us for I am sure that neither death nor life in other words See verses 36 and 37. I just talked about that. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers. Um, We would think, angels? I thought they're like on God's side. Likely, this angels or rulers is talking about kind of any evil spirit in the spiritual realm that might try to attack us. Neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Anything that could ever be in the, the time realm Or powers. What does he mean by powers? Any kind of spiritual force that Satan might try to use against you. So I am convinced, I am sure in this translation, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, not just anything in the time region, but anything in the spatial region, anything in these realms. And just in case he forgets something, he just makes this sweeping statement to make sure that you know that he has absolutely taken a comprehensive inventory of all possibilities, nor anything else in all creation. And then don't miss these last phrases. We'll be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Think about that. Nothing else. And all creation, if you're in Christ, will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Scott says, why do you need to hear these five things be answered? Why do you need to hear these five unanswerable rhetorical questions? We urgently need this today since nothing seems stable in our world any longer. Insecurity is written across all human experience. Christian people are not guaranteed immunity to temptation or tribulation or tragedy. But we are promised victory over them. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. Ever. He will never let us go. Our confidence, don't miss this, our confidence is not in our love for him which is frail and fickle and based on what's going to happen in the next set of circumstances instead our confidence is based on his love for us which is steadfast and faithful and persevering it is chesed love sorry it's chesed love persevering steadfast faithful faithful Stott, after he looks at this and says, this is so good. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints needs to be renamed. It is the doctrine of the perseverance of God with the saints. That's, that's crazy awesome. That God continually, no matter what, under all circumstances, will always persevere with his saints because of the love of Christ for us. So I want to conclude by saying it this way. Earlier I said God was for you and I want to say it just differently. I want to make it even more personal. Christ is for you. Christ is for you. Christ is for you. How about this one? Jesus, the Savior, the Sustainer, Jesus loves you. Jesus. Jesus loves you, cares for you. Jesus loves you, who you are, sinner and saint. (sighs) That changes the way we live. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. God, be with us now as we worship. I pray that the love of Christ will so move us, not just now in these next moments as we worship, but as we walk out of the door and that our lives will be forever changed as we preach no condemnation and just continually find ourselves amazed by the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord.